This side. Where am I? Nowhere. This side. Where am I? Lost in time. And I'm still in Mexico. For only about three more mornings. And then I fly away. I'm not feeling very sentimental about the place, I must admit. I'm just ready to go on to the next thing, and when I get there, I'll be ready to go on to the next thing after that, and when I get to that one, I'll be ready to go on to the next thing after that, if there are any next things after that. Well, good old Gun-toting Texas comes up with another one. Yep, in Texas. No skill shooting. Where? Nineteen little fourth graders are blown away in a matter of machine gun rapid-fire seconds. It's some kid bought before he headed over there and did all that shit and killed a couple of teachers too. I guess this particular one is a case where since he just bought the uh, guns, something could have been done to keep him from buying these new guns to do this act. <clears throat> On the other hand, I have a kind of a quirky point of view about guns and gun control and the uh, liberals' handling of this issue, which I think has been a absolute tragic failure. Yes, I remember back in the days of yawn, around the time that Kennedy was uh, murdered, probably by the CIA, but uh, anyway, that's another story. So then there was, that was the first time I recall hearing a big call for gun control. We gotta uh, get control of the guns because uh, you know, this uh, lone nut got some for this Italian cheapy rifle, which is, was apparently impossible to shoot that rapidly, um, from a catalog somewhere. And then, uh, how quaint. He got it from a mail order catalog. I think the, the situation has devolved a good deal since then, partly because of the calls for gun control. Because they didn't have the uh, uh, ability to follow through with it. So what the situation uh, that unfolded was we had for about um, 60 years uh, a liberal uh, end, uh, a left-wing end of society, presumably, all behind control of these weaponry, gun control. Okay, 
So uh, what what happened? Well, they weren't able to really get any decent gun control laws, and the whole thing evolved into a reactive mess where the message from the uh, right to the people uh, who were concerned with their guns and their freedom were all told that they're going to take your guns away, they're going to take your guns away, they're going to take your guns away. And that just caused people to save up. In this situation, buy more guns. The water's going to stop. Let's get more water before it does. The food's going to run out. Let's get a bunch of food before it runs out. So at least we'll have some. They're going to outlaw the guns. Well, I better get mine. And it's built a right-wing movement that has completely taken over the country. Because along with this impulse to uh, buy more guns, a certain sector of the population also went... Uh, very right-wing to support their uh, liberty beliefs with the weapons. So now they're going to uh, deny their maybe e economic needs to elect somebody who's going to uh, set up a better economic system, like, you know, a little more socialistic. Oh, I'm sorry I used that word. But, uh, you know, something like that so they can have, a, like, a better... Uh, standard of living and, uh, you know, take some power from the corporate, corporate overlords. So what, what happened here is that the, the concern about uh, the gun control, they're going to take our guns away, the Democrats are going to take our guns away, and abortion, they're killing babies, these two things have destroyed the uh, liberal United States. And uh, do we have more guns than ever now? And now we're banning, they're banning uh, abortion again. <clears throat> because they have the power. Because they've used these two tandem issues to keep building power. And then what does that mean? It means more support for the military because the Democrats have to show that they're not soft. So they have to support the war machine. So the Republicans support the war machine. And now uh, what happened with gun control is there's more guns and weaponry in the world than ever. So don't go threatening people, starting movements where the other side can start taking, saying they're going to take your freedom away when you don't have the power to actually do it and show them what it will actually mean on the other side of it. They were told their guns were going to be taken away, so they bought more guns. Did you ever read... Uh, well, now I've forgotten the name of it... Um, Many years ago, there was a Lyle uh, 
Lyle Stewart, the, the sort of renegade publisher who published the anarchist uh, cookbook and so forth, published a, a right-wing novel. The Turner Diaries is the name of it. And I read this, you know, I, I don't know, 30 years ago. So this is how long this has all been going on. I mean, it was already an old book. So what the Turner Diaries is all about, it starts with this guy, I guess, Turner, who, uh, you know, the, the uh, oh, the, the government has finally decided to take the weapons away. So the whole uh, right-wing insurrection uh, hanging of the uh, black people uh, and, and everything else that goes on in that book, uh, you know, the right-wing atrocities that uh, so much of our culture is so much angled for and, and wanting. Um, well, that's um, actually a lot of this stuff is, is kind of unfolding. Like these January 6th people with their, uh, I mean, yeah, I was just listening to a, a podcast. Um, what's it called? The, uh, the, uh, the, uh, it's about January 6th, eight-part podcast about January 6th. Will Be Wild. It's called Will Be Wild. And, you know, they talked to a lot of these people, and, uh, you know, it's just a delusional system. And, you know, all these things have helped build Fox News, build this, this sort of fear and paranoia of the government. Oh, Ronald Reagan comes in. Oh, the government, government off our back. They're going to take the guns away. Yeah, Ronnie, okay. Here, give your money to your, everything to the corporate uh, overlords of us, and we'll, we'll just trust in that, and everything will be all right, Ronnie. Is that what you're telling us? At least we'll, we'll get to keep our guns if we uh, obey the corporate overlords. That seems to be the nature of the game. So it's horrible that... Uh, even in Texas, as horrible as all that is, you can't just raise your kids. And all these names, they're all uh, Hispanic, all, all uh, presumably Mexican of origin. Well, you know, Texas is Mexico anyway, or ought to be. Remember the Alamo. So, yeah, it's how can anything be more horrible than this, and of course it will call for more gun control, which won't happen, and people will buy more guns because there's going to be gun control. You see how it works? So I don't know how to get out of this bind, but there is a bind going on now, and it's a cycle that keeps repeating, and... Uh, Good luck getting out of it. Where am I? 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 Mexico, San Miguel de Allende. I'm now in the park again, talking to you. <clears throat> it's early in the morning. It's not even 9 o'clock yet. There's people 
whooping and hollering in the uh, basketball court here in the park where they have a kind of aerobics uh, thing going on, you know, one of those things where you uh, play dance music and then you have a leader ordering people to jump around in a certain fashion as they are, like uh, Simon says with a movement of aerobics. Anyway, they hoop and holler every once in a while and uh, encourage one another, and maybe you can hear it off in the background somewhere, but I don't think so. flying out of here on uh, riding out of here on Sunday morning at 7.30. It's about an hour and a half trip. It's about an hour and a half trip to the uh, Lyon airport from San Miguel. And the flight is at noon. Which takes me into beautiful Texas where I hang out for a couple hours on Sunday afternoon in the airport and then on to Ohio that evening. I read a book about uh, a Midwestern author from Indiana, as a matter of fact, like uh, Theodore Dreiser is also from Indiana, who is one of my favorites, who wrote Sister Carrie, and uh, an American tragedy that was turned into a uh, movie, uh, A Place in the Sun. And uh, it's, uh, he's a great novelist. Oh, I'm not really talking about Dreiser. In this case, I'm talking about uh, um, Booth Tarkington and his book, The Magnificent Ambersons. Booth Tarkington, The Magnificent Ambersons. Yes, he's another Indiana author. And I have read all of Dreiser. I loved his stuff. He is a German-American immigrant type, um, I guess, Tarkington's more old stock, so more conservative. Tarkington's concern seems to be the rise of uh, 20th century. Um, this novel's written in 1918. So we're seeing all these changes from the uh, Civil War until World War I, which, in, in caused, uh, which meant a, bunch, a bunch of industrialization. And a part of the book uh, ha- uh, centers around a manufacturer of automobiles in town and a uh, love uh, um, situation that is sort of triangular between the son and the guy looking for uh, <clears throat> the guy that's going to become the uh, car manufacturer. And uh, the son is uh, given the uh, ability to... to um, complain about the cars. So there's a certain amount of material about uh, industrial sprawl and cars and actually cold-fired furnaces and soot 
he has in the book, he has people moving further and further out of this Midland place, this uh, Midwestern <clears throat> city that's growing and growing and growing. And uh, he has the uh, characters moving further out from the city center. And one of the reasons they're moving is not because it's just old and growth and moving on and boomer, uh, boomtown uh, sort of madness that is, permeates a lot of American growth and so forth is, uh, you know, boom and bust, move on, forget it. Uh, and a lot of the Midwestern cities are, I mean, I spent some time in Evansville, Indiana recently, where my brother died and uh, that, that was, uh, you know, downtown was uh, formerly something, you could see that, but is no longer something and it basically was deserted. So okay, that's the way it uh, that's the way it goes, um, and you know I didn't really understand this sort of soot business about it, but in the old days, I even remember my uh, grandmother, great grandmother, in Ohio in Canton for a while. My parents, being very young, they needed uh, some place to live with their little baby kid, me. And up until about the age I was uh, six, <clears throat> we lived with my great-grandmother in some old house in Canton, in downtown, more into town in Canton. And then when I, where I ended up growing up a little further out. Anyway, she had a coal-fired uh, furnace. This was the 50s still. So I remember being in the basement and looking at the coal chute, the little door that comes in from the outside uh, near, the, near the ground level where the coal truck would come and with a chute from the coal truck, dump the coal basically into a big pile into the basement, which then uh, someone has to keep feeding into the uh, furnace. Well, the byproduct of all this uh, coal action and industrially, uh, with the factories they're building at the same time, was a great deal of soot and dirt in the air. <clears throat> and the novel has these people uh, fleeing the uh, center part of the city because their houses get smeared with this soot. And everything is covered with soot. So they move further out where the soot is not traveling to uh, declimate uh, their pristine, beautiful white houses that they have to paint brown in the area where the soot is. So that was a, a certain kind of a view of the uh, sprawl thing and how the sprawl went on in conjunction with this creation of this machine that can make the sprawl happen, the automobile, uh, was it a little extra insight that I got from reading this book. <clears throat> so, if anyone has seen the Orson Welles film, it centers around, even if you haven't seen the center Orson Welles film, it still centers around this main character of uh, George Minifer, who's a brat, who is the only child uh, of his grandfather, and uh, father, <clears throat> uh, and uh, mother, 
He's the only child, all right, of this old line rich family in Midland here. So uh, he, uh, he feels secure in his wealth. He uh, is very arrogant. He looks at any outsiders or new people as riffraff, you know, like foreigners or whatever, although it's not explicitly racist and uh, it, it doesn't have an explicit sort of uh, nat uh, nativist tone to the novel, but uh, you know, that's behind it there somewhere. <clears throat> so, George doesn't want to work. He doesn't think he needs to work. He also um, is very arrogant and he just wants to play and he wants to, and he also isn't very much connected and um, to his mother uh, since he's the only child and his father is kind of weak his father ends up passing away in the course of the story um, <clears throat> and George is a guy that uh, is rude to everyone in town young fellow and uh, he is set to get what people call a comeuppance. He is going to, at some point, have a fall from his uh, elevated state he has of himself. And, uh, well, the novel does bring this about, of course. Um, so, in reading this, I, I, I thought I was going to look more down on George than I did, because I found that he has lots of traits of myself and maybe it's really a story of, of uh, the brattiness of uh, the kind of people that are created out of uh, modern corporate uh, industrial uh, sort of uh, empty, um, somewhat lonely culture. And because um, I felt like, well, George is a lot like me when I was a kid. I I, uh, I was not raised. I was raised by these, you know, completely different situation than George. We were not the rich people in town. My parents were very young. High school, my dad, a high school dropout and worked in a factory. Swing shifts, a different shift every week, which was, you know, hard. Like one afternoons, one week, days of the next week, uh, you know, uh, in a cycle of shifting schedules <clears throat> and nice union wages that made me think that we were actually middle class and uh, that I had really kind of no concerns of life. So that, in conjunction with uh, the lack of real um, communication between me and my parents and the television, which was on all the time once it arrived, I think I got uh, distorted in a way that made me very much like George, and I think a lot of us Americans are like George, sort of bratty, sort of expecting things uh, in a sort of entitlement, um, not really uh, aware of the, the effects we're having on other people as far as hurting them emotionally. I certainly haven't been. 
to look at what's gone on with my recent relationships and how difficult I get on with people. And, uh, you know, I think he, he got onto a certain sort of character thing that was coming out of the, uh, of the industrial changes to this place where we are right now. <clears throat> so, um, I would recommend reading The Magnificent Ambersons as a very good novel from uh, that period. And uh, I don't know if I'm going to read any other Tarkintons. I might eventually, but uh, I do a lot of reading. I sit around and read like maybe four hours a day. And I'm very slow because I'm kind of dyslexic, undiagnosed dyslexic, which probably gave me a great deal of trouble in school. So, <clears throat> I read slowly. And I sit around here reading these books and this, uh, you know, we're supposed to be, uh, I guess I'm supposed to be out hanging out with the other expats or something. I don't know. I just stay in my room reading my books, talking to my microphone, smoke my little marijuana, which is now only in the evenings. I've uh, cooled that down a great deal in anticipation of going to Ohio, where I'll probably stop for a few days anyway until I get another supply if, in, in case I do there. I don't even know if these people uh, use <clears throat> altering substances anymore other than pharmaceuticals or something that they give all the old people. <clears throat> but I guess I'll find out within a week. There is a thing about being in Mexico in a city like this and, and moving in with a, uh, another expat is that I really haven't been exposed to having to deal with many Mexicans. It's, it's hard to um, get out of the uh, expat uh, cycle. I mean, even if you go to a store, uh, the uh, Mexicans will often speak to you in English. Um, whereas I'm struggling to, uh, you know, I want to speak in Spanish and uh, so often I, often I will start out and ask my question in Spanish, you know, something I've figured out or know, you know. I know what several words are and so forth. Of course, then when they respond, it comes out rapidly and then I'm lost again. But uh, at any rate, I might stay with my Duolingo and uh, after New York, I might come out somewhere else. I don't know. Um, I think it would like to be a, a little more deeper into Mexico and a little more rustic in some sort of a way. Uh, of course, I want to retain my internet connections and all these things. So it's, you know, it's like how far can you go before or how far do you get to be free, or how much freedom can attachment to these uh, 
certain things uh, that are not connected to freedom um, allow you, like uh, having to have internet. It's uh, you have to be somewhere where the internet is. You can't be just you can't be anywhere, just, anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. Song, Christopher Ryan's show, tangentially speaking, so you can hear her on that show in the past few months, uh, talking about the book. <clears throat> and uh, it's called Open. So one assumes it's about this open relationship, but reading the book, what it actually is about is about, it's about a specific type of power sexual relationship, a uh, daddy little girl relationship to be specific. He was uh, an older man, not extremely older, but a little bit older. And, uh, you know, she was just, just in her 20s when all this was going down in the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, whatever the timeline of it all is <clears throat> in New York. And, um, you know, it's about this Dom guy and dealing with this Dom guy and this, you know, the needs of this essentially narcissistic Dom guy. And um, lining it up with the uh, other book, The Magnificent Ambersons, Amberson gets all uh, uptight and destroys love, his own and that of his mother, uh, and his his uh, his. Lucy, his lover, his mother, and uh, Eugene. They all end up in this sort of tragic uh, non-connection bind uh, because of the talk that he thinks there is going on around town. He's gotten some uh, 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 some gossip that there's gossip about his mother and Eugene. So he steps in to uh, stop all that. And uh, so it's funny because in uh, lining this up with that, it's I'm, I'm very sensitive about this daddy little girl thing and one of the reasons why I left my most recent relationship with someone who was very kind and lovely and a lot younger was because a friend of mine had implied that what she and I did together was a daddy little girl relationship <clears throat> It ended up being because that's what he was into. Well, you know, I was I was appalled. I was like, okay, we're we're living in her father's house, and I'm going to carry on a uh, daddy dom situation in in a situation where she can't even get out of her father's house. So uh, that 
uh, it ver was very upsetting to me. And uh, then I was thinking about the being at, the, at where we worked together in this place. And uh, if there was, uh, you know, if everybody thought that, looked at us and, and looked at her and thought she liked to play little girl. And I didn't want her to be looked at like that by anyone. And that's one of the reasons why I backed away from the relationship. Another reason, I just wanted to be free and on my own, and I didn't have enough money to take her away with me. And the, the willingness to take the responsibility of taking someone else into my life at this point at age 70 and deciding what I want to do and thinking that that would be good for someone who was over 30 years younger. <clears throat> so this open uh, memoir is, uh, I, I listened to the audio book, which was a mistake. Uh, actually, I heard her on another interview suggesting that we should re listen to the audio book instead of reading it because, uh, you know, she has more nuance to, to her voice and, and you get more of the texture of what she's trying to say. Well, that might be so, but then you can't underline anything. You can't really, you know, uh, I guess you can take notes outside of it. I, uh, <clears throat> but you can't really, uh, yeah, you can't highlight so, and, and I'm, I'm not quite sure I liked listening to her, you know, for, for that long. Um, so she, she um, as this other interview, uh, I mean, other review I read of it that I thought was uh, quite good. Uh, stated that um, she she didn't have enough time between herself what the events that went on since these these are events that just you know just finished and uh, this other reviewer um, <coughs> can I can find it oh. Jessica Woodbury on uh, Goodreads uh, suggests that, you know, this young woman didn't have enough time away from the events that went on to, to really write a, a memoir. And, and that, you know, this woman believes that uh, Jessica <clears throat> believes that a memoir should be written some years later when you really have time to uh, digest your own behavior as well as that of others and how it all interacted and made whatever occurred occur. So uh, it's funny because all through this kind of long review, she doesn't really mention the, uh, the power dynamic being 
sounded disturbing to her, although she does say something about red flags and, um, <clears throat> you know, she says it's not about non-monogamy, uh, which a few couple others have as well. So, so if you're interested in non-monogamy and having an open relationship, this is not the book. This is about this struggle of this is a daddy dom guy to control this uh, young woman and uh, her, you know, ability to uh, fight her way out of this uh, situation. So that's really what the book is about. And don't listen to what people say and might be gossiping about you and your loved one. Just go ahead and enjoy. Of course, then, if you don't feel up to the loved one to begin with, if you felt a little over your head, then, well, I guess whatever excuse that you can come up with to uh, get out is uh, <clears throat> what you come up with. Regarding the gun thing, I saw an interesting statistic today. Yeah, from uh, the newsletter, leather of uh, Heather Cox uh, Richardson, who writes every day, <clears throat> apparently. And somehow I got on her list. But, you know, she's addressing. Some things about the uh, the gun issue, and um, this is interesting. Uh, um, the uh, best-selling AR-15 military-style uh, weapon used in many mass shootings. Uh, there are about uh, four hundred thousand AR-15 rifles before the assault ref, uh, weapons ban went into effect in uh, 1994. Today there are 20 million. <clears throat> well, the assault weapons ban was uh, stopped 10 years later, but uh, at any rate, there is, uh, you know, a seriously arming up of... Uh, Americans, which is what I was saying, and, and what I partly attribute to, uh, you know, the failing of these uh, gun control uh, efforts. That <clears throat> you don't, you know, do something like that uh, without really the power to pull it through, and uh, some other kind of movement, grassroots movement, needs to occur to. Well, already there's so many out. There are 20 million AR-15s alone. <clears throat> Yikes. This side, this side of nowhere. Side.